Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been working our way through Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part One, the second play in a tetralogy. The first play, Richard II, we have talked about in preceding weeks, and we are now almost exactly at the center of Henry IV, Part One. We are in Act Three, and the central scene of Act Three, which is Scene Two, therefore a kind of a hinge or central point of the play. And very appropriately, that scene is taken up with the meeting of father and son, King Henry and Prince Hal. Hal has been dreading this meeting, and for good reason, because he knows that his father is not at all pleased with his behavior, and he knows there is going to be a confrontation, and there is. The play, along with the entire tetralogy, is taken up with father-son relationships and the symmetries formed thematically by those relationships. We have to remind ourselves also the mirror parallel relationship between Northumberland on the rebel side and his son Hotspur, who is an opposite number to Prince Hal. One of the rather few changes that Shakespeare makes to the historical record is to make Hotspur and Hal roughly the same young age, whereas in real history, Hotspur was 23 years older than Hal. But here, they have to be contemporary young sons, father and son, Northumberland and Hotspur, and Henry IV and Prince Hal. And Henry, even before this particular scene, has been comparing the other son, Hotspur, to his own, and rather wishing at one point that the other son were actually his own, because his own is nothing but a, a disgrace, or as we shall see, even worse than a disgrace to him, possibly even a betrayal of him. We also have a father-son relationship of a sort between Hal and Falstaff, an older man who is a father figure in a rather ironic way to the young prince, or at least he thinks of it that way. What Hal himself thinks is very complicated, and we're going to spend a long time figuring it out. Maybe in some ways we will never figure it out. But at any rate, here we are arrived at the central conflict between father and son, Henry IV and Hal, and it goes exactly as Hal feared it would. The king lights into him. Hal tries before his dad can even begin to apologize and extenuate, saying, I may, for some things true, wherein my youth hath faulty wandered and irregular, find pardon on my true submission. 
It's true, there's been some things where my youth wandered and was irregular, but I hope to find pardon by submission. Father's not letting him off that easily. He says, God pardon thee. Yet let me wonder, Harry, at thy affections, which do hold a wing quite from the flight of all thy ancestors. Thy place in council thou hast rudely lost, which by thy younger brother is supplied, and art almost an alien to the hearts of all the court and princes of my blood. The hope and expectation of thy time is ruined, and the soul of every man prophetically do forethink thy fall. Had I so lavish of my presence been, so common hackneyed in the eyes of men, so stale and cheap to vulgar company, opinion that did help me to the crown, had still kept loyal to possession and left me in reputeless banishment, a fellow of no mark nor likelihood, by being seldom seen, I could not stir, but like a comet I was wondered at, that men would tell their children, this is he. Others would say, where, which is Bolingbroke? I did pluck allegiance from men's hearts, loud shouts and salutations from their mouths, even in the presence of the crowned king. In other words, in the presence of Richard II, the king that at that time, Henry, looking back to the time when he was still Harry Bolingbroke, in front of the king, King Richard, and yet up, upstaging King Richard, and the way in which Henry goes on in this long speech to characterize Richard back in that time is very indicative as a young, immature king, which is, again, not historically true. Richard, by the time he died, was on the throne for a good while. But Henry says here, the skipping king, he ambled up and down with shallow gestures, gestures and rash babbin wits, soon kindled and soon burnt, carded his state, mingled his royalty with capering fools, had his great name profaned with their scorns. And by doing all of this, the antics of someone who sounds young and immature, he, Henry says, grew a companion to the common streets and fiefed himself to popularity. And when that happens, Henry says, they lose all respect for you. The gist of the speech that I've been quoting is that I made myself scarce so that when I showed myself, it had a huge effect. Look, there he is. But you, you are like a pop song that's been played too much. People are tired of you. People are developing the contempt bred by familiarity. And therefore, you afford no extraordinary gaze such as is bent on sun-like majesty. Again, the association all through the tetralogy of the king with solar 
imagery. We saw that in Richard II. This speech, which I have only quoted about half of, goes on for almost a page and ends like this. Not an eye, but is a weary of thy common sight, save mine, which hath desired to see thee more, which now doth that I would not have it do, make blind itself with foolish tenderness. And I always pause in a classroom and make sure, because as usual with Shakespeare, there is no stage direction. The audience and the reader have to look carefully at the exact language, what he is saying. No eye but is a weary of you except mine, which now is doing what I don't want it to do. He's weeping. He is weeping with grief and pain over his disgraceful son. Hal murmurs apologies and promises to amend, and Henry is still not done. For all the world as thou art to this hour was Richard then, when I from France set foot at Ravensburg, even as I was then, is Percy now. You are like Richard was then, when I came and toppled him from the throne. And right now, Percy, meaning Hotspur, is more like what I was back then, the young, fiery, up-and-rising comer. And that is what is causing the grief and the tears. And he ends, there is still more that I am omitting because he just can't stop. It comes out in a torrent. And finally, he ends, why, Harry, do I tell thee of my foes, which art my nearest and dearest enemy? Thou that art like enough through vassal fear, base inclination, and the start of spleen to fight against me under Percy's pay, to dog his heels and curtsy at his frowns, to show how much thou art degenerate. That is deeply stinging, deeply painful. Why do I tell you? You might just turn around and become my enemy too. You might go over to Percy's side and suck up to him and try to kill me. When your own father says that to you, it is deadly serious. Hal is sparked into a long speech of his own, which we will not read because we can summarize it quickly with a couple of powerful lines. Do not think so, he says. You shall not find it so. And he goes on to say, I will redeem all this on Percy's head. Now it's personal between me and Hotspur. Why? Because my own father says he's a better man and a more loyal man 
than I am. I will call him to so strict account that he shall render every glory up. And the king buys it. The king accepts this as sincere and is moved and overjoyed by it. A hundred thousand rebels die in this. Thou shalt have charge and sovereign trust herein. From going to, to I don't trust you, you might betray me and actually help to kill me, he suddenly says, you shall have charge, you shall have trust. And he carries through with that. The war is on. As usual in this play, with its very unusual rhythm for history play, we shift back and forth between upper and lower class and therefore between high solemnity, power politics, and big language, and lower class, the criminal class, and a lot of low humor. And of course, at the center of that humor is always Falstaff. And Act 3, Scene 3, which ends the central third act, is about Falstaff and, in fact, is about money. At every point, it's about money. In other words, something very easily understood in our time from politics. All those high ambitions, but baby, there's the bottom line. And the bottom line here is the bottom of the social totem pole. Falstaff owes the hostess, the woman who is running the tavern that they hang out at, and her name will turn out to be, and there will be more of her in Henry IV Part Two before all that very long, because this is also exactly what Falstaff accuses it of being. This is also not just a tavern, but a brothel upstairs. Her name is Mistress Quickly, for reasons that you can figure out. And Falstaff owes her money. Well, big surprise. But of course, he tries to pretend that he doesn't and tries to deflect from the fact that he clearly does by making a big to-do out of the accusation that somebody picked his pocket while he was asleep behind the heiress, which we have seen previously. And in fact, it was picked. He's using this to deflect from the money he owes, which of course he does not have, but it was picked, we saw this, by Prince Hal. Yet another jape, another trick. Trick playing practical jokes. It's the whole way of relating of Falstaff, the prince, and the gang. Picked his pocket, which was full of junk and worthlessness, and about 25 cents, so to speak, in American terms. And how now, Dame Partlet the Hen, have you inquired yet who picked my pocket? Falstaff blusters. Do you think I keep thieves in my house, the hostess says. And goes on, she's not falling for the deflection. You owe me money, Sir John. 
and now you pick a quarrel to beguile me of it. I bought you a dozen of shirts to your back. That, we have no way of actually proving it, but we seem to be invited to take that as actually a fact, that the hostess, as we shall see, has something between a motherly relationship to this fat old man and perhaps even a hint of being in love with him at the same time. She's bought him shirts, a dozen shirts, and the thanks this poor woman gets for it is, oh, dowless, filthy dowless, in other words, cheap shirts, cheap stuff. I've given away to bakers' wives. They have made bolters of them. Well, if that was true in an act of charity and or love, that's a pretty cruel thing to say. We have to decide that about Falstaff. He is hilariously funny, and yet there's a cruel edge, and this is going to come out on the battlefield big time. There is a cruel edge born of a type of deep, down-to-the-bone cynicism about everything about life. He often speaks of being melancholy, and at first it seems counterintuitive or discordant, but in the end, I think we're able to well believe it. There is more to Falstaff than just the happy clown that is the life of so many parties. At any rate, he keeps trying to fake it and lie. Another thing that may give us pause about Falstaff, especially if we're from the United States, is the way that he lies shamelessly for his own advancement. I've lost a seal ring of my grandfather's worth 40 mark. That's a total lie. And everybody knows it's a total lie. Hostess rolls her eyes and says, Oh, Jesu, I have heard the prince tell him, I know not how off that ring was copper. And he goes blustering, Falstaff does against the prince, who immediately shows up. And Falstaff still playing his game complains to the prince, this house has turned body house, they pick pockets, and tries to claim to Hal's face that he lost this valuable ring because he doesn't realize he was asleep when Hal picked his pocket. He doesn't realize it was Hal that did it. So he tries to claim he had this valuable ring that this disreputable place has lifted off of him. And uh, the prince, of course, shows him up and humiliates him insofar as Falstaff can be humiliated and says, okay, look, uh, times have changed. Things are new now. And we are at war. And guess what, Falstaff? You're in the army now. I have procured thee, Jack, a charge of foot. He is Sir John Falstaff. He is therefore, as aristocracy, as a titled person, he is capable and ready to be in charge of troops in a war. So I have procured thee, Jack, a charge of foot, foot soldiers, to which Falstaff predictably says, I would it had been of horse because he never wants to walk because of his weight. 
And we will see. Already the audience is probably tittering, imagining what Falstaff is going to be like as a commanding officer. And it lives up to their wildest expectations. As we move into Act 4, when it begins to hit the fan. Modern metaphor, but it gets the idea across of what begins to happen within a dozen lines of Act 4. We move to the rebels. We are actually shifting by this point between three different things. The tavern, the courtroom of Henry IV, and the rebels. We are done with the tavern for this play, though it will occur again in Henry IV, Part Two, And now we shift between the Henry IV court and the rebels. And we have Hotspur, Worcester, and Douglas in scene one receiving the bad news, one set of bad news after another. It's spaced out over an act of about 135 lines, but about every 15 or 20 lines, somebody else sends their regrets. Sorry, I know there's this big battle coming up, but I'm afraid I can't be there. I have a prior engagement, blah, blah, blah. Including the very first one, with an absolute dead shock, the messenger comes and says, these letters come from your father to Hotspur. And Hotspur says, letters from him? Why comes he not himself? He cannot come, my lord. He is grievous sick. Hotspur typically bursts out. Zounds, how has he the leisure to be sick at such a jostling time? You're not allowed to be sick when we have something going on. And the messenger tries his best to put a good face on it. Well, he was much feared by his physicians. And Hotspur is just beside himself. He writes me here that inward sickness and that his friends by deputation could not so soon be drawn, nor did it, he think it meet to lay so dangerous and dear a trust on any soul removed but on his own. Translation, not just from Shakespearean language, but from evasive language. Oh, he's sick, all right. Yes, well, in the very next line we learn his friends could not be drawn, the allies that he was calling upon refused to come for him, so therefore he's refusing to come and aid his own son. What we are witnessing is a man betraying his own son. I lay stress just a moment ago on Henry IV's fear that his own son would betray him and say that he admires Hotspur more. But what we find now in the constant mirroring that goes on in this play, typical of Shakespeare, that it's actually Northumberland who will betray his own son by simply not showing up. He's not sick. He's, he knows 
a losing battle when he sees one. People are not coming loyally to the aid of the cause, and he's keeping out of it. He's for the main chance. He's for number one. Your son is number two. And that's only the first of the bowing out of all the people who talked so big in previous acts. Vernon says, I learned in Worcester as I rode along, he cannot draw his power this 14 days. No other reason given. Oh, that Glendower were come. Well, we don't find it out in this scene. We actually have to wait until scene four. The Glendower will not be showing up for reasons that only Glendower would allege, as we'll see in a short while. But most of the people that we have seen plotting are conspicuous by their absence, and there is a good reason for it, because it doesn't look good, the odds don't look good, and they're pulling out. Not, of course, Hotspur, and not at the present, Douglas, a man who is portrayed throughout as a kind of a mad dog, a kind of a macho, blustering, I'm not afraid of nobody, baby, kind of guy with a Scottish accent. Hotspur sums it up at the end of this scene, scene one, with his attitude. Doomsday is near, die all, die merrily. It's doomsday, apparently. Out we go to die and die merrily. Douglas says, talk not of dying, and the scene ends. And we shift again from high life to low life. We shift to Falstaff, who, when Hal said, I have given you command of troops, actually included in the duties of a commanding officer in the army of the time was you had to raise, you had to conscript the troops yourself. You had to go and find the people to fill your contingent. And you were given money in order to do this. You were given the power and the money to pay these people. But typical of Falstaff, he has pocketed the money. And he's pocketed some more money too because he goes around to the likely targets of his draft here the real people who might have been real soldiers who are aristocratic and who have money, and he has allowed them to buy their way out of conscription and pocketed the money. So he still needs an army. He can't get away with just doing that. He has to make some pretense that he's actually doing this. So he has gathered the dregs of the land and the scum of the earth. In a hilarious description, he says, I pressed me none 
But such toasts and butter, with hearts in their bellies, no bigger than pins' heads. And they have bought out their services. And now my whole charge consists of ancients, corporals, lieutenants, gentlemen of companies, slaves as ragged as Lazarus in the painted cloth, where the glutton's dogs licked his sores, and such as indeed were never soldiers, but discarded unjust serving men, younger sons to younger brothers, revolted tapsters, and hostlers trade-fallen, the cankers of a calm world and a long peace. Goes on to say, a few lines later, a mad fellow met me on the way, told me I had unloaded all the gibbets and pressed the dead bodies. Told me I'd unloaded all the gallows and pressed the dead bodies after the hangman. No, no eye hath seen such scarecrows. He has picked the dregs. He's picked social failures and people who are old or injured or half-starved. And he refers to them in a significant line, a line that expresses an attitude that might very well be shared by a good number of people in the play, in Shakespeare's time, and even in our time, the cankers of a calm world and a long peace. If we pause to think about that, we see that there's an attitude there that makes us pause, makes us think, because the idea is that peace, we think of peace as good, we think of peace as a success, but the attitude here is that peace is bad. People get decadent, people get soft. This is an opinion held by some people to this day, that peace is not good, war is good, because it shapes up the population, it weeds out those that are not fit to survive by a kind of social Darwinism, and therefore war is a kind of evolutionary necessity, we would say in our language. The 20th century and the 21st are not unfamiliar with that kind of an argument at any rate, Falstaff uses it to excuse the fact that what he's recruited is or will be pretty soon cannon fodder. And these people are not going to survive. It's hard enough to survive in war. And when people who are untrained, people who are unfit, both physically and mentally, people who have no motivation, to be there and have no loyalty whatsoever to a cause. Note again, the lack of loyalty being the theme. They're not going to survive for very long and Falstaff knows that. The prince comes up and says, I did never see such pitiful rascals. Your troop is pathetic. <laughs> tut, tut, good enough for toss. Good for powder, food for powder. They'll fill a pit as well as better. Tush, man, mortal men, mortal men. He's a funny guy, and sometimes we feel for him, and we will feel for him again 
as time goes on, but there's a frightening cynicism in his attitude as well. Mortal men, they'll fill a pit as well as any other. No compassion for them whatsoever. It's very complex. One of the favorite characters in all of Shakespeare, so much a favorite that according to the story, the queen herself commissioned Shakespeare, or at least strongly asked Shakespeare to write a whole other play with Falstaff in it, which turned out to be The Merry Wives of Windsor. And yet, there's something dark at the center of this character. The rebels are still plotting when up in scene three of act four, up comes an emissary from Henry IV and his side, a man named Sir Walter Blunt, whose name aptly fits his nature because he's a gruff but absolutely authentic career military guy. Blunt meaning, and I think this is important in the scene, blunt meaning no evasions, no quibbling, no playing games with words, and that's important because this straight-from-the-shoulder guy comes bearing an offer from the king that if you guys back down and end your rebellion basically before it starts, before the battle, the king will listen to your complaints and treat them with consideration. And they don't accept his offer. We'll see more of the complexity behind that. But at any rate, the question now is, do they go through with it? Because so many people have bowed out that this is likely to be a catastrophic failure. And the last scene in Act Four is very significantly, if you have been reading since Richard II, enter the Archbishop of York, whom we have not seen in this play, but who played a crucial role in Richard II of switching his allegiance to Bolingbroke, a man who had been most adamant about the proper succession and the fact that Richard was the proper king according to the rule of primogeniture, switches his allegiance out of pragmatic necessity. And it is no accident that here, right before the Battle of Shrewsbury, which will take up the entire fifth act, and which we will be looking at next week. Here, the last words before that battle are given to the Archbishop of York, who, among other things, reports why Owen Glendower, the Welshman, is going to be absent too, one of many. He comes not in or ruled by prophecies. You have to read very quickly and carefully in Shakespeare. There's a world not only of meaning, but sometimes of humor in just a bare phrase, or ruled by prophecies. In other words, he got up, looked at his horoscope that morning, and said, uh-oh, 
My horoscope says, undertake no grand plans today. Stay in bed. So he's overruled by the same stupid superstitions that he was a prey to earlier on, this claim to be the great magician. And does he really believe that? Is he really that superstitious? Or is he yet one more coward? Because obviously all these people are cowards. They had the guts to get into it, but now they don't have the guts to go through with it, except for Hotspur and, at the moment, Douglas and a few others. Oh, well, what about Mortar, Mortimer? Uh, a character says there is Douglas and Lord Mortimer. Nope, the Archbishop says Mortimer is not there either. One after the other after the other. And soon it's going to come down among the characters that are major enough for us to remember their names, basically, to Hotspur and Douglas. And the Battle of Shrewsbury will take place in Act 5 and end Henry IV, Part 1, and we will take that up next week.